I'm not um, advocating a total laissez-faire. Uh, I'm not advocating we scrap everything and turn it into the Wild West. Uh, I just think that London, particularly because of common law, particularly because of, of, of a very good legal system, infinitely better, I think, than any of the other financial centres in the world, uh, this is what London was good at, and we lost much of that. And, and one of the reasons for that was... Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. And hello, I am Shay Russell here. I am taking Nick Hubble's spots for the Fortune and Freedom podcast. But as usual for your weekly review, I am joined by Nigel Farage. Nigel, how are you this morning? Yes, fine, thank you. And you know, watching these watching these gyrations in world markets and a lot of liquidation going on out there. You know, there's a lot of people really absolutely done their bits on some of these tech stocks. They're getting rid of everything. Um, and that partly explains uh, why gold has had a much tougher time in the last couple of weeks than maybe we would have expected. But no, other than that, all good. Look, uh, Nigel, I'll be quite honest, we do have a little bit of a different podcast for today, but that is a great topic to start with. Let it, let's talk about why gold is having a bit of a tough time. It, it seems that uh, every rally up with gold right now gets snuffed out awfully quickly. Why is that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's possible, of course, that somewhere in the world there are central banks selling gold. Uh, that is possible. Um, after all, Gordon Brown sold all of our gold at $258 an ounce. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, but I, I, I think quite a lot of people have bought gold and crypto over the course of the last year as a hedge against inflation. Inflation, by the way, that Nick and I have been talking about since last January, even if that idiot we've got as the governor of the Bank of England uh, Andrew out to lunch Bailey, as he's known, um, even if he couldn't spot it. And even if Boris Johnson, our prime minister, in October told the House of Commons inflation wasn't a threat. I mean, you couldn't make it up uh, in terms of the sheer level of incompetence with which we've been led. So I do think people have bought gold, bought crypto as a hedge against inflation, but have found other parts of their portfolio you know, these tech stocks that were all going to go to the moon and don't worry your little heads about debt and about the fact they haven't made any money yet. It's all going to be great. And the dot-com bust of 20 years ago, that didn't happen. That's ancient history. And so I think what's happened is we've seen quite a bit of liquidation across the board uh, because people have taken such a battering in some of those tech stocks. That, I think, is the main reason for it. Um, and I have to say... Uh, you know, gold, gold, is, I mean, Nick and I have discussed this before. Gold is basically range trading. Uh, that range has gradually edged up. Um, and if you believe we're still in the range and if you believe it is still a good hedge against inflation and things going wrong, then you have to say that gold where it is now actually is looking quite cheap. Look, I completely agree with you, and I think we should revisit the topic of gold again next year. But first of all, let's deviate from the normal show that you do with Nick, and I want to talk about your background. Now, we both have a love of base metals, but I believe you walked straight out of high school to working at the London Metals Exchange in the 80s. So tell me, how did you manage to bypass university? But also, too, what drew you to working in such a dynamic environment like the LME? Well, my father and grandfather uh, were both on the floor of the stock exchange between them for about 110 years. Uh, so the stock exchange was where they all you know, came from. And I, 
I, I, you know, everyone at school said you must go to university, you must go to university, but, you know, Margaret Thatcher had been elected, exchange controls had been removed, suddenly the city was changing from an old gents club into something quite buzzy and exciting. And there was the growth of something called the yuppie, you know, the young upwardly, I wanted to be a yuppie. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it all looked too good and too much fun to be true. Um, but I just found the, I found the sort of open outcry atmosphere of the LME exciting. Um, I liked the fact that it wasn't simply a casino because all of those contracts are backed up by physical delivery. Um, I love the fact that it was utterly global in its perspective. I was becoming quite Eurosceptic even back in those days, 40 years ago. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I you know, ignored uh, the advice given to me by everybody um, and went aged 18 straight into the LMA. And it was a very interesting world, a small world in terms of just a few hundred of us involved in the industry, um, but a world a world before excessive regulation, a world in which, you know, I was taught the first week I was there uh, that if you conduct something on behalf of this company, there's no argument, there's no question, you know, your word is your bond and that's that. Um, and, and, and sometimes, sometimes you would get a dispute, um, particularly on the ring, particularly on the open outcry side of the trading, uh, you know, someone shouting over here, shouting over there, you know, is it 50, is it 15? You, you know, things like that did happen from time to time. And, you know, you might get a couple of quite burly lads from Essex um, sort of beginning to square up to each other. And <laughs> yeah, we had a disputes mechanism. Um, an old retired army lieutenant colonel uh, would take the two arguing traders over to the wine lodge, the pub over the road, he'd buy three pints of beer, they'd sit in the corner, and within 10 or 15 minutes, there would be a resolution. <laughs> um, and if the trader came back and didn't come out the right side of it, we'd say, well, you know what? It all comes out in the wash. Next time, we'll come out on the right side. You, you compare and contrast that now with all telephone calls being recorded, uh, lawyers being called in at the very first instance, compliance departments being bigger than the wealth generating trading and broking departments. And you see, we're in a very different world. And, I'm, and by the way, I'm not um, advocating a total laissez-faire. Uh, I'm not advocating we scrap everything and turn it into the wild west. Uh, I just think that London, particularly because of common law, particularly because of, of, of a very good legal system, infinitely better, I think, than any of the other financial centers in the world, uh, that this is what London was good at. And we lost much of that. And, and one of the reasons for that was being part of the EU. Uh, you know, I've been looking this morning um, at securitization and the fact that we're still mirroring everything that the EU's doing, even though we've left it. And that's because the FSA, others, I remember once meeting um, a couple of them coming back on the last train from Brussels, the last Eurostar on a Thursday, and we went into the bar and, and, and had a chat. And they basically said to me, look, we come once a week to get our orders from Brussels. We, we've kind of, in regulatory terms, got into this mindset that we don't do it for ourselves. So I think there are some big lessons, you know, all through, through 40 years of being engaged with, involved with, and watching financial markets. And I think, I really think actually, if London gets this right, um, and we can use Brexit properly, then I think we can become the great financial center that meets our potential. There is, however, a problem 
with the enemy. And I hate to say it, but it's true. The enemy was a mutual society effectively between its members. Uh, they got a bid from the Chinese, a bid they couldn't resist, and they sold out a few years ago. And I was completely opposed to it. I thought it had the potential to damage the enemy's preeminence in terms of, of, of fixing the daily price at which metals are bought and sold and trade all over the world. I mean, many attempts from New York, Chicago, Shanghai, and elsewhere, many other base metals contracts established around the world, but none of them really seriously ever challenged the LME in terms of establishing that global daily settlement price. <clears throat> and now what we've seen is a, a massive short position being built up in nickel uh, by a Chinese trader. Uh, quite how a short of that size was even allowed, I don't know. But in the squeeze, you know, the market rocketed. I mean, in the space of 48 hours from $30,000 a tonne to over $100,000 a tonne. And what the enemy then did was to cancel a whole load of trades from that period. As a result, they're now facing what is effectively a class action lawsuit from a series of hedge funds and investors. Uh, the market is being accused of cancelling out their trades and potential profits in order to save themselves. Uh, the brokers undoubtedly had, had issued ridiculous credit to this individual uh, and the exchange has failed. The exchange, being this is 1877, it's had its crises before, we had a tin crisis and many other things, but generally in the past, you wouldn't have said that the problems with the exchange's fault, it was just stuff happens in the world, you know, the Ukraine war, big example, the, the Yom Kippur war in 1973, things happen, uh, but this time it's utterly self-inflicted. And I was out earlier this week, I had dinner earlier this, this, this week with two very, very senior figures in the global metals industry. Um, both of whom think, you know, this could be the end of the LME um, as we know it, in terms of its reputation, in terms of its liquidity, in terms of its reputation for setting daily global settlement prices. And there is now an active debate and discussion underway as to whether some alternative needs to be created. So it's, it's, it's a sad thing that's happened to the LME at this moment in time. And it all goes to show, however global we are in our attitude, uh, however much we want uh, London to be a place where foreign banks and businesses invest and trade, um, at the end of the day, uh, these things are national assets um, and they should not be sold off to the Chinese Communist Party, who when push comes to shove, will always act in their interests and not in the interests of UK PLC. Um, I really like the point you made there about uh, the LME probably not, no longer being the place of price discovery in the future. Now, our time's about to draw to a close, so I do want to touch on something that Nick Hubble insisted I ask you. Now, one of the nicest things somebody ever said to me once is that I'd survive quite well in the open outcry futures pit. Unfortunately, I was born a little too young to score a job in the Sydney Futures Pit. However, I do believe that you probably have one or two war stories that you can finish us with today. Tell me, Nigel, what's one of your fondest or maybe least fond memories of your time working in the LME Open Outcry? Oh, I think it was the time there was a guy down there and he, there was an error. There was an error. They'd got an order, a big order the wrong way around. 
you know, rather than buying a large lump, you know, sold a large lump. Uh, and we could see on the faces on the other side of the floor, they were in trouble. You, know, you, could, you could see they were in trouble. Some very yeah. heated discussions in the box going on, and everybody waited with eager anticipation. Um, and the guy came out bold as brass and started selling the market, even though he was massively short as a result of this error. <laughs> and, and he started selling the market, aggressively selling the market, sold it down beneath a, re a recent trading low. That led to a series of stop losses being triggered, and he bought the whole lot back at the most massive profit. And that was perhaps <laughs> uh, the best poker face I ever saw <laughs> on the <laughs> on open outcry trading. But it was interesting. You know, when you worked in a noisy environment, it was the very simple things you had to get right. Diction absolutely crucial uh, jotting things down accurately and it sounds stupid doesn't it a plus or a minus but if you're going very quickly and something gets badly written so it, 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 those simple points about accuracy those simple points about listening really listening to the order that was coming in and maybe doubly confirming it in the space of you know a fifth of a second or whatever it was um, and it was the people who it was the people who kept calm when it was very, very noisy. It was the people with good handwriting, interestingly, that made the best clerks. Um, and just, you know, there was no room in that world for people that made mistakes. And you could make the odd one. I made a couple of howlers. Um, but you couldn't make too many or you were on <laughs> your way out. And there was, no, there was no sort of redundancy payments or you were gone, that was it. Um, and of course, it suited some people. It didn't suit everybody. Uh, but for those of us that did like the industry, it was an amazing place to work. Fabulous camaraderie. As I say, in the early days, uh, very little uh, compliance to bog us down. And London was the world leader. And the moral of the story is, that's what I want Brexit Britain to become again. Nigel, uh, I guess I never would have survived in a futures pit because I have handwriting like a chicken in an earthquake. So I probably would not have had the career I thought I would. Look, I just would like to wrap up today's conversation here. Thank you very much for your time and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you.